Hello, I'm Ben Horton, and you're probably wondering why is there an episode of Undercurrents in my podcast feed this week? This is not an Undercurrents week. Undercurrents is a fortnightly podcast from Chatham House. But we have got a very exciting bonus episode for you this week. It's a collaboration between Chatham House and the Techplomacy podcast, which is an output of the, of Denmark's tech ambassador, Casper Klinger, who is the first ambassador, state ambassador to Silicon Valley, who is in conversation uh, with our director, Robin Niblett, who has been on Undercurrents before, was on an episode just before Christmas. If you want to check it out, scroll back in your feed. And Robin and Casper were together in San Francisco to talk about all things tech, how tech is changing the political landscape and what can be done about it. And it's a really interesting listen. So we hope you enjoy it. And please join us next week where the normal recording schedule of Undercurrents will resume. Welcome to Techplomacy Talk. My name is Casper uh, Klung and I'm the Danish Tech Ambassador. We're in El Camino in the middle of Palo Alto. I'm joined by uh, Dr. Robin Niblett, who is the director of the Royal Institute of International Affairs, or I think better known as Chatham House. And, and I guess, Robin, we could begin by talking about rock and roll music and how good you are at playing uh, the electric oh, guitar, Robin, because I know that <laughs> we've done, we've done a lot of intel on you. But, um, but since I played a little bit of music in my old days, uh, that would have been a fantastic conversation. But I think we should be talking about the state of the world order here in, in 2019 and what role technology is going to play. We are very proud to, uh, to help you with uh, your program here in Silicon Valley. We think it is important that think tanks are increasingly looking into the role of technology in, in a foreign policy context. So it's fantastic to have you, and thanks very much for joining this podcast. Thanks for the opportunity. I appreciate it, Casper. Great. Robin, let, let's begin with the easy question. You know, how does the world look like from a Chatham House point of view uh, here in, in 2019? And we'll come back to Brexit and uh, what happens in D.C., but sort of an overall picture of how you see the world. Well, um I imagine people have said this before, but I will say it as for today, which is that it looks as unpredictable and potentially unstable um, as I've seen in my 25 years working in the in the kind of think tank business, if you want to call it that. I was in Washington for 10, 14 years before moving back to London um, and went through the end of the Cold War, uh, the 9-11 period and so on. Um, but those took place still within a context where you sensed that uh, the world was in a running in a direction roughly in the imagination of what Western leaders and Western societies would have wanted it to be. Mm. Uh, the fact that the Cold War was won by the West, if you want to use that term, uh, the fact that China had joined the WTO, um, the fact that democracy and democratic forms of government were gradually inching their way around the rest of the world, you know, that really does feel like quite a while ago today. Uh, so, in a nutshell, today I see the dichotomy of a world that continues to get ever more interdependent, mm -hmm. whether from climate, uh, pandemics, financial regulation, whatever, but at the same time is grappling with a really uh, a much more heightened level of international competition. And this is competition literally of the old school sort between states trying to represent big blocks and governments. And obviously this is manifested now most explicitly in the US-China tension. 
Um, and I know people use the Cold War analogy now and again. Um, it does have some parallels uh, in the sense that uh, there may not be an ideological competition yet as there was between communism and democracy, but the more authoritarian, centrally controlled form of government that China represents um, is rising and looking more powerful at a time when the democratic forms are looking ever more vulnerable. Mm. Uh, and if you throw President Trump in into the mix, it really creates quite a volatile context. So my, my one word would be volatile, but it's still an interdependent world. We have not gone back to mm. the 19th or even first half of the 20th century. In my view, there is no going back. So it presents a, a massive agenda for us in the think tanks, and I'm sure for you as a diplomat. And just to be the devil's advocate on this, how much of this has to do with psychology that in the West we have to get used to the fact that we can no longer set the agenda by ourselves, that we can no longer sort of multilaterally or in international organizations set the agenda, but we have to get used to the fact that, that others are as influential or perhaps becoming even more influential than we used to be? Is, is that part of the equation that we have to sort of uh, control, delete our mindset and get used to a new reality? Well, um I, I think that it's not simply a matter of adjustment um, in the sense that uh, adjusting would be adjusting to a China that uh, once its GDP and its population size started to correlate a little more closely mm -hmm. is going to be the largest economy in the world. Um, and to uh, a center of economic gravity that moves from the West, let's say broadly to, to Asia, maybe India comes in the mix. That's really a case that would be adjusting your mindset. But um, what is going alongside this adjustment in economic gravity and political gravity is a competition of systems. Yes. And that's what makes this real and not something I think we should be adjusting to. It's something we need to grapple with, tackle and face head on because it's, it is a, a real case that it is manifesting itself, not just psychologically, but in very practical senses. Um, we're seeing uh, between the US and China a great focus on trying to protect national champions, mm. closed markets, um, and this obviously is playing out in the tech side as well. There is a battle over rules, uh, over national champions. There are uh, suspicion that people are trying to hack into each other's political systems to weaken one side or the other. I mean, this is real power politics taking place Uh, in an era where we thought it had all gone. And sitting here on the West Coast on this beautiful sunny day, it's hard to imagine this is going on. I say sitting in London, and I'm sure it'll be the same sitting in Copenhagen, uh, you feel that as, as more than just a psychological mm, adjustment. It's more of a uh, of waking up to a real reality. Mm. And I guess we're, we're sitting... Uh approximately a couple of kilometers away from Stanford University where Francis Fukuyama has his office and been there a few times. And of course, back in the day, he wrote a, a piece that became uh, almost uh, infamous about the end of the history, the liberal world order would prevail. We would see uh, basically everybody uh, aligning to, to the same values, the same systems, etc. I guess that is not only a long time ago. That That is certainly not the case today. And what you're alluding to, uh, Robin, is of course that that there is no no such thing as uh, convergence towards the liberal uh, world order or indeed a rules-based international order. Would, would you agree with that? Um, I would agree with that. I mean, I think one must separate out the rules-based part from liberal. Uh, in the West, we talk of a liberal world order. I like to talk of a rules-based world order because simply rules-based would allow you to accommodate different systems of government, providing each side isn't trying to undermine or interfere with the other. And part of the psychological adjustment, where I think you're right in your comment a minute ago, 
is that we will probably have to coexist with very different systems of government in a single shared planet, a mm. global economy, and shared challenges, again, like climate change. Um, so having rules to help manage that coexistence of different systems, but uh, in a shared planet, to me is the, is the absolutely dominant thing. And I'm wondering, from your point of view, whether you, if I may throw a question back to you, whether as a diplomacy ambassador, do you think there's an awareness here in the West Coast of this growing tension? Or is it something that's just happening so off the margins that people think it is just about psychological adjustment? The honest answer, if, you've, if, you've, if we've had this conversation uh, two years ago or one and a half years ago when I, I hit the, the road here in, in Palo Alto, I would have been more pessimistic in the sense that uh, the conversations I had with the big companies, I think, revealed uh, a lack of understanding that they were part of a bigger system, they were part of sort of a, a Western uh, value-based approach, they were products of the West as well. Um, and I think they, they cared very little about whether their systems or their platforms or their technologies would indirectly, uh, you know, undermine those values or would actually help, uh, you know, the, uh, the the transformation of power from, from the West towards the East. I think today we are seeing a bit more awareness, a little bit of a, an understanding that they have responsibilities that goes beyond uh, the bottom line, beyond making money for the investors, making, you know, profitable uh, companies, that they also have to make sure that they don't you know, provide platforms that enables uh, malign actors to meddle with elections, that you don't see, uh, you know, extremism or, or terrorism being uh, promoted online on the systems. But I don't think we're there yet. And, and as, you, as you rightly point out, that's one of the raison d'etre behind uh, the establishment of my job and, and my team, that is to work with the companies uh, in, a, in a critical way, uh, where we also very often bring to the table uh, you know, a soundbite saying you have to make sure that you don't sort of undermine the very societies that you, you're product of yourself. I mean, this, this idea that uh, technology in a way, and tech companies who are so young in many ways, certainly in a, in a historical sense, are having to adjust to the concept of the triple bottom line. Exactly. Which, of course, it took energy companies and some of the big retail companies that we, we know of. Uh, you know, they've been struggling with this for 10, 15 years, yep. and now they're aware... Uh, certainly if you look at the energy sector, becoming aware that they can't just look at the shareholder, they have to think of stakeholders and employees. And it strikes me that the tech industry is trying to do this super fast, even as their whole business is evolving fundamentally at the same time. Yeah, but but I think there's, there's a, a very big difference between if you look at the climate change debate and, and some of the old school companies that have to adjust. And I don't think we've defined what externalities constitutes in a technology world. Uh, that's one thing. But we've been struggled on defining that because of two things. Because of the fast pace of new technology being rolled out literally outside the windows of where we're sitting. And, and the other aspect is, is that, that technology is very difficult to define. I mean, it transcends uh, everything. So, you know, what is Google a media company, an ad company? Is it an autonomous vehicle company? What is it? And I think that's where the technology companies are somewhat different than the shells or, or ExxonMobil companies of, of the past. But I do think what we're seeing these years is an increased focus on the byproducts of these new yeah. uh, technologies. And, and that actually leads me very elegantly as a nice segue to, to my next question to you, Robin, is, and that is we talk about sort of the changes to geopolitics, if you like. And if you throw in some of the big companies that you'll be meeting here in the next couple of days, I mean, how, how important a change is that also for international relations and for the balance of power, if you like? Um, it matters hugely because uh, where these companies appear to be residing most powerfully are 
inside the two countries that are the two poles of this new competition, uh, the United States and China. And the speed at which China has realized that it needed to catch up to the US. Uh, I think it was a paper that was written for the Chinese Communist Party back in 2013 when they realized how dependent they were, mm-hmm. not just uh, as they still are today for semiconductors from Qualcomm and so on, but also at that point, uh, right down to operating systems, to hardware, Cisco, IBM, uh, and Microsoft, never mind Apple, uh, and, and the ones that have followed. And the speed at which they have equated having a strong tech industry, which, as you said, covers so much of the economy, um, with national sovereignty and having independence yeah. uh, means that uh, this really, uh, th- th- this world of tech companies who thought they transcended in a way geopolitics, that are going to build global companies in the Mark Zuckerberg sense of Facebook for everyone, yeah. have suddenly found themselves at the absolute front line. So the fact that the strongest operators sit at the two poles of this new geopolitical competition, two different political systems, the two most powerful nations in the world, uh, with then countries like Russia playing off the side and allies like Europe trying to have a voice in, this has echoes of the past. I think it throws up a very interesting question for what Europe's role is in this. It's almost like we're having to design the arms control for this new system, even as we're trying to work out what what the new system is. Uh, You know, whether regulation can be put alongside arms control, but maybe that is the new form, form of arms control today. Yeah, and actually, we we looked into this a few days ago and and did a small infographic on the most valuable companies. Where are they located? And and just to confirm what you mentioned, Robin, I think we came to the conclusion that ninety percent of the most valuable technology companies are either in the U.S. Most of them are today, but but certainly in Asia and and let's be very frank, most of them in in China. And I think the trajectory is that those are the two areas that will continue to grow. Potentially, if you look at it as a zero-sum game at the expense of, of other continents. And uh, and as you say, Europe is not a, a big player on on creating the unicorns of tomorrow. And if you look at the current map, you know, the most prominent technology company in Europe is SAP, a company that is, is certainly not, uh, has not been developed in the last couple of years, like the companies that yes. will, will, will be around. Where does that leave Europe? I mean, are we going to be the regulatory body of, of the world and then, you know, China and, and US will create innovation and will make money out of it and will we'll try and create sort of the, the rules-based approach to it? Look, the, 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 the somewhat uh, deprecatory or negative way of, of looking at it would say we're just trying to regulate other people's stuff. Yes. Uh, when you know the, the sayings that go on around this between the roles of America, China and Europe, I won't repeat it here. Um, but uh, I think it's a slightly more creative role than just a passive one. Uh, number one, obviously, the EU uh, is a market today, pre-Brexit, of over 500 million uh, people. It will continue expanding a bit, I imagine, in the future. And it certainly has a number of countries around it tapping into its regulation is the only market of scale, partly because of its wealth, um, that if you've got a US and a China in a way still trying to grow their tech companies and you're trying to get into markets, the European market is an incredibly important market. So this gives the EU, even though it's not been able to integrate its market around data into a single data market in a way that's allowed it to then develop and and deploy these technologies as effectively as China America, despite that, um, it has uh, the market power to uh, perhaps rub off some of the edges of the Wild West nature of the competition. Now, that would be the, as I said, that'd be the kind of passive reactive approach. But I think what's interesting about Europe as well is I do think 
European politicians, European civil society, European citizens for that matter, are reflecting a more global desire not to be controlled mm. by companies, whether they be American for that matter or Chinese. Mm. Uh, that this is a much more universal sense, and just as Europeans, I think, have championed universal human rights in the UN, um, in you know behind the, the the mess you could say that is GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulations, but uh, is an effort to try to define some of those principles around a liberal uh, forms of life and politics that I think will have a lot of, of resonance. And it's interesting to see other countries, yeah. where Japan, South Korea. Uh, in a way, looking to Europe, slightly to that model, and saying, look, we also want rules. We don't want to just get squeezed between America and China in a big bilateral competition. Maybe if a group of those countries that appreciate the value of rules and are tuned into what their citizens want, you know, that, that becomes a more creative role, if you see mm. what I'm saying, rather than mm. a reactive one. Mm. But, but do you think that sort of holds waters in the real world? I mean, that's sort of the argument I'm using myself. And, and by the way, I think <laughs> it is right. I should be challenging you. <laughs> no, not at all. I think, I think we're spot on, on on the speaking notes on this one. But, but I think the point here is that we've seen evidence that Europe has indeed set direction in the ecosystem of technology. Not necessarily because the technology companies love it. Uh, GDPR is a good example on that. I think the copyright directive that we yes, saw yes, uh, the exactly. voting on a few, few weeks ago is another example of it. California is introducing something similar. Uh, you forgot an important uh, country for, for the UK, India. I was there yes. a couple of months ago. They're looking at uh, GDPR um, as well, perhaps even a GDPR plus with, with more stringent uh, regulations. In fact, they've t they're taking a very, very interesting approach to, to technology. But I guess my, my question here, just to be, again, the devil's advocate, is that you know, in our desire to have consumer protection or protect you know, the liberal values, human rights, etc., Will that happen at the expense of innovation? And the reason I'm asking this is that when you look at the at the global economy, uh, I, I'm not in one second in doubt that we will be enormously dependent on big technology companies for creating the jobs of tomorrow, but certainly also for growing our economies or retaining uh, our economy. So if we innovate and we have fantastic universities in, in Europe, uh, good patents come out, but all of these companies are gradually scooped up by the big ones. I mean, where, where does that leave uh, Europe from a, from a jobs point of view and also from an economy point of view? Look, I think the, the, the dangers for Europe is, is simply being a regulator and not being a participant in this process. Yeah. Um, ultimately, as I think you're indicating, will, will, will be unsustainable or certainly will lead to quite a, a suboptimal outcome for everyone concerned. America will resent us regulating something that we don't really participate in and uh, and ditto China and maybe others. I think the the challenge for Europe, specifically here, is to be able to innovate at scale. Um, and the problems are pretty straightforward in, in how to fix that, in my opinion. Yes. They're not in the tech space. They're in the capital markets union. They're in the lack of deep liquid uh, uh, financial markets and products that go beyond bank lending, but that private equity side that has really turbocharged precisely in the area that we're sitting in today, yes. uh, the capacity of these companies then to leverage off their 300 million plus market and what in a way was a, a frontier free world beyond it. Those frontiers are now being built and sort of pushing America almost back and some of those companies back towards its own market. But um, Europe could have some of that scale. It's never going to have the flexibility as a union of 27, 28, maybe going on to 30 member states. But um, I do believe that Europe uh, actually has its destiny in its own, in its own hands, mm. which is a better place to be than not. 
because as you noted, a lot of the uh, great innovations, a lot of the individuals coming up with these ideas are European. They often have to come out over here, they get bought up, uh, and the technology gets absorbed. Um, I don't think the national champion route, which is the one that is being pushed, at least in the traditional economic sector, uh, by French and German governments and others right now, is the right route in the tech space. But you do need to have uh, the capacity to at least give an opportunity for European companies to innovate in a way they don't today, which to my mind is more about money than about anything else. Um, now, if we don't get that money, uh, are we always going to be playing catch-up? Uh, yes. Yes. Well, that's a role. But I guess one of the conclusions is that, and, and we should work together in ensuring that the next European Commission that will come into into place will put at the very top of its agenda uh, a renewed focus on technology, on digitalization, on creating innovation and supporting innovation in, in Europe. Uh, again, uh, speaking just on my own behalf, I think that's something which is so evident when you're spending time here in Silicon Valley or you spend time in, in China, Shenzhen, Shanghai. Uh, a lot of things are happening, a lot of good things are happening, but certainly things that are going to, to tilt and, and also the uh, the balance and I think also the role of Europe. So so perhaps a bit more focus in that area. Well, I, I, you know, I'd like to think, but I'm not enough, probably because I'm here, to try and learn more uh, from you and others about what's taking place uh, here in, in the Bay Area, um, is the extent to which uh, might we have seen a high watermark for some of these really big U.S. companies, the same may take place yeah. in China. I mean, it could be that the regulation starts to tie them up. In a way, only the big companies will be able to cope with the regulation, which is what we've seen in the banking sector, where probably we still have banks that are too big to fail. They're the only ones who can cope with the regulatory burdens of, of, of being uh, banks and almost public utilities at the same time. But it would be interesting to see whether um, Europe is able to be a pioneer in more distributed forms of economic activity. As people are talking about energy markets going to a more distributed system, locally driven energy production, stored, traded, uh, might there be something in the diversity of Europe that might be a strength of the future? I've added two conditionals onto that, might, might. So you can tell I'm not confident, but it's, in any case, it's a space worth exploring. And it's such an important point that, uh, that we see confirmed on a daily basis. GDPR is not a challenge primarily for the big technology companies. That's why you're seeing them embracing it. Uh, you know, if they choose to comply, they have a a plug-and-play play, uh, product that is, is readily available not only in Europe but also globally. I think the companies that are struggling are more the small and medium-sized uh, enterprises that, by the way, constitutes the backbone of most of the economies in, in Europe. So there's, there's a real issue here of getting it right on the regulatory front to make sure we don't sort of um, make life too difficult for, for the small and medium-sized enterprises so this in is Europe. Where I think that the lack of understanding amongst politicians and in many cases regulators about what technology is, how it's changing, that asymmetry of information and understanding, um, it worries me. Yeah. Um, not just in the US, but it worries me about the kind of role Europe might be able to play. And I presume, again, I don't know whether that's something you feel as a Danish diplomat working in this space. Uh, I mean, how much do you need to know the technology and understand at its cutting edge and the new frontiers that have been broken through in AI or machine learning. Mm. How important is it to understand the technology in order to be able to apply policy to it? I, I probably need to understand more than I do, <laughs> but that's why I have good people around me who, uh, who are more uh, experts on, on these matters. And I, but I, th I think the point here is that it's a conversation, it's a two-way conversation where the companies will also have to get into a position where they better understand what governments are trying to do, better provide uh, you know, information, being more transparent about what the technologies are doing, what, what kind of biases and non-biases you see in the algorithms. And 
And you know, just before turning on the the microphone, we we spoke a little bit about the Mark Zuckerberg op-ed uh, a few weeks ago, where he was basically advocating for for more regulations from a government point of view. Um, you know, my response to that is, I think it's fantastic that uh, you know Zuckerberg has seen the light that they understand that you know as a company they also need uh, governments to provide some sort of framework or some sort of regulation. My point here is only that it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, for governments to do regulations or for the European Union to do regulations if we don't have any insights, if we don't have any transparency about the nature of the problems, be it meddling with elections or how uh, you know extremism or, or terrorism is, is being promoted online. So it, it, it really takes two to tango, and, and that's part of, of my mandate and what we do to constantly remind the big technology companies that they have a very important role to play, but they also have to be more, more forward-leaning than, than what we've seen in the past. Robin, just moving to another topic that is related to all of this, and I know it's on, on top of your mind, uh, it is on top of my mind as well, and that's the transatlantic relationship mm -hmm. here in 2019. Um, you know, as a diplomat, I have to be slightly more careful than, than you might have to be, but I think it's fair to say that the transatlantic relationship is being challenged these years, mm -hmm. um, that the, the Brussels and, and Washington might not be as close as, as we used to be. And, and frankly speaking, one of the reasons why we are on the ground here is also to establish other relationships with, uh, with, uh, with the U.S. society, not least with the big technology companies. But I think you've, preparing for this, I saw somewhere that you said that the timing of the, the America First doctrine is sort of particularly harmful right now. Could, could you elaborate a little bit on what you mean by that? The, the thing is, I've, I've heard uh, even colleagues of mine I used to work with in Washington say, look, America First isn't such a bad term. Mm -hmm. Uh, because every country is first. It's Germany first, China first, you know, Denmark first, I'm sure. Uh, but we're, we're less vocal on that one. but <laughs> <laughs> First to take diplomacy in, in, in Palermo. Oh, yeah. yeah. Fair point. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think the, uh, the problem with saying America first when you're the most powerful country is it means everyone else has to be second or third or fourth. And it, it is, it is a, a statement of abdication I may be think tanky about it for a second. For a second. <laughs> it's a statement of abdication of your role as a hegemon. Yes. You know, hegemonic powers are ones that are willing to take less out of the pie because they know the size of the pie benefits them and all of their allies. President Trump is very much a person who says, my slice of the pie has to be bigger than somebody else's slice of the pie, or we're losing. Um, and when the most powerful country in the world says, me first, it puts everyone else on notice, including its closest allies. Um, and I think you can see in the kind of triangulation uh, the Japanese have been doing in their relationship with Russia and even with China, mm -hmm. quietly on the economic front, people are realizing they need to look more after themselves. It's a slightly more free-for-all world yeah. in which the U.S. will play power politics as much as Russia or China might in terms of their interests. Mm -hmm. And allies better follow, um, but they don't get a say in what the policy is, uh, whether it's the Iran uh, uh, the pulling out of the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, yeah. uh, on the Iran nuclear uh, deal, um, or the climate, or you take any of your picks. The, the, the fact that the United States has chosen to withdraw itself, or is choosing to withdraw itself from rules-based structures, which are designed precisely to control the most powerful, so that everyone can benefit somewhat from the size of the pie. When America, the most powerful nation, says, no, I'd rather play in a world of billiard ball politics of the strongest other other the might is right because we're the mightiest mm. that is a, is a warning shot now to European countries who created the European Union precisely um, because of their relatively small size and learned what happens when you try to have might is right 
uh, it's a really existential uh, challenge. Even though some of the things that President Trump has done, criticizing European defense spending, uh, standing up to some of China's more egregious uh, economic and, and tech practices, those are all fair calls. But structurally, it, it could, it, you know, it's damaging. Now, what you're seeing, I think, in Europe is efforts to adjust to this. Mm -hmm. uh, the Huawei case is probably the, the clearest one, where even a country like the UK, um, in a weak position right now, um, as it works out how to exit the EU, um, is trying to find a way to do Britain first. And in fact, I wrote something back in December saying that actually this is a time for a Europe first policy towards China. Mm. Uh, take advantage of the fact that America has put China a bit on the ropes and see maybe if the EU could get a deal with China on bilateral investment or whatever. Uh, so we're each going to start thinking a little bit more for ourselves. And the question is, can you hold an alliance together yes. in that context? Maybe a partnership. And can you? Well, uh, it becomes much more transactional. Alliances can be transactional. They've yes. always been transactional. Um, and in my opinion, Europeans have clearly been free riding on American defense spending and American power. And it's about time we woke up and said, well, you know, if America is going to be playing a bit more might and right, saying, if you want to go your own way on your relationship with China, what are you doing in that case? Why am I defending you fully in this space? I think it is a time for Europeans to step up a bit more, uh, whether through the EU, through NATO, through any uh, structures, and take a bit more care of their own future. As I said, it's a dangerous world out there. And if we do more for our own defense, we'll be in a better position to be allies than we are today. But Robin, just doing a, a small deep dive on one of the things that have been on the table for, for well, ever since uh, President Trump came into office, spending in NATO. Uh, I think that's a really good example of what you, what you are talking about. Uh, the bullying policies actually working. We're seeing European countries now stepping up to the plate, increasing the defense spending. So basically accommodating to, to the wish and, and desire of the, of the current US president. What I'm interested in, in, in better understanding from somebody who, who understands international relations the way you do, is, is this sort of is this a, a snapshot of the world as it is right now, or will there be longer term longer term consequences for alliances for uh, the balance of power uh, also after uh, President Trump will have uh, left office? Uh, I believe that once you say America first, it can't be taken back, even by future presidents. In a way, it's such a bold statement. I'm trying to think of a, of a president who would dare not say America first after it's been said. It's like letting a genie out of the bottle. Yeah. Now, that genie is out of the bottle partly because the world has changed and Trump is a symptom and is a cipher for a much deeper frustration amongst the American public at large about what are they getting out of this world that they've been the hegemonic power over, that they've been, in a way, underwriting. Mm. And uh, uh, many Americans have not done well out of it. This is why the whole liberal world order is under threat because in the end... Most governments in the West spent their time uh, focusing on the aggregate benefits of globalization, yeah. not enough on its disaggregated effects locally or particular communities. The, you know, net GDP can be growing, but it does not tell you the story of, of the winners and losers. Yeah. So um, this winners and losers element, the kind of regaining the trust of your populations, that the governments really have the interests of a majority at heart, is going to take some time. And in doing it, all governments, all governments, including in Europe, mm. are going to pull more back inside themselves. Mm. Um, and so I think this is a snapshot, mm. but a snapshot of the next 10 years, at least maybe 20. Yeah. I don't think the kind of populism we're seeing uh, uh, throughout Western societies, um, which has echoes of some of the nationalism that you see, whether in China or Russia or India for that matter, 
he is going away. This, this is why I said right at the beginning of this conversation that we are in a much more competitive world. And I, I see the future, as far as I can see it, being people trying to thread the needle between a more competitive international system mm. and the realities of interdependence. Yeah. Because no one wants to break the globalization merry-go-round. Everyone benefits from it, from yeah. the West Coast to China to even Russia. Um, but everyone wants to have a bigger say over it and more control on how it affects them. Mm. And that's almost an impossible square circle. And let's throw in what uh, what is an important part of my job, namely to think about how technology is contributing to those tendencies or the trajectory, but also how the big technology companies have a, a role which is almost de facto like uh, the tra- traditional role of, of states or international organizations. Um, for those who've been in doubt whether we need to treat the technology companies as influential actors, I think we only need to go back to to the voting procedure of the copyright directive in Europe to see that some of the companies, including one a little bit further down the road, took a very, very forward-leaning role, basically putting ads out to yeah. to uh, counter uh, against what uh, what the European Commission had promoted in terms of putting limitations on on IP rights, etc. Um, but before perhaps going in that, just one question: We're meeting here just a, a few days after the you know very, very tragic events in, in Sri Lanka with the terrorist attacks. You know, my my parents, they're best friends were from Sri Lanka, so that was my first experience traveling to Sri Lanka many, many times when I was a kid. So also on a personal level, I'm quite affected by by what happened. But but there's a question mark on what role technology is playing, whether you look at Sri Lanka or in tri- Christchurch uh, a few uh, few weeks uh, before that. Um, the Sri Lankans closed down Facebook. Um, we saw something similar happen in, in, in other parts of the world. Is that a tendency that you think, Robin, we'll, we'll, we'll see more of that, you know, you'll close down technologies, platforms, uh, critical infrastructure as we try and battle with, in this case, extremism, terrorism, uh, the, the role uh, that they're playing in some of the big and heinous crimes that we're seeing these years? The, the big communications platforms like Facebook um, are simply hyperdrive what has always happened in human societies going back a thousand years or two thousand probably the spread of rumor yeah the spread of disinformation the spread of innuendo this is nothing new in humanity this is the stuff of politics um of warfare um and of of tragedy going back as i said hundreds of years you give lots of examples so you create a platform in which people can communicate quickly It's not that the platform is wrong or evil, but it will be um, used as a tool for uh, at moments like this. So there's a very fine line, not a fine line, uh, I think uh, national governments, until we come up with a better system of international politics or politics, national governments have responsibility for security within their, within their borders. Yeah. And uh, if closing down a platform uh, prevents bloodshed uh, and, and so on from taking place. They have a duty to do so, in my opinion. Um, and I'm not going to criticize it one iota. What, of course, we will watch for in the West is that that is then used. Uh, you know, who defines what is spreading a pernicious rumor? What is a terrorist? This much abused phrase. I think uh, President Erdogan of Turkey recently talked about food terrorists. It was companies who were putting prices up for food because of the high inflation rate recently. I mean, it's bandied around loosely. So we know that governments will manipulate opportunities like mm. this. But all we can do is say, uh, at extreme moments of emergency, I think governments have to have the right to be able to bring 
tools of communication within their societies under control. You then need to have a very strong set of principles about what is uh, an accountable or open society, such that you're able to then reboot that afterwards. But um, in the countries where you worry about Facebook being closed down mm. are the ones, you know, that it'll be temporary, are the same ones where you'll be worried about their control of the media, mm. the same one where you're worried about uh, overly centralized control and cronyism. So, in a way, you can't separate those two things out. But just because a government that is not particularly well, uh, let's say, uh, doesn't follow liberal principles, uses a policy of this sort, doesn't mean we shouldn't, let's say, in the UK. Mm. If there was something, I think when there were some riots taking place about three summers ago, Twitter accounts were closed down around yeah. parts of London for a while because arson uh, attacks were taking place and they were able to tell each other where the police were coming and where not to hit. Uh, uh, they closed Twitter accounts down in central London. Fair enough, in my viewpoint. Mm, mm. Uh, it's the framework within which it happens yeah. that, that really matters. And that's something I've been struggling with on a personal basis myself to to sort of get to grasp with whether these platforms should be seen as a utility, almost a human right to everybody, or whether there is something different between a platform and, let's say, a newspaper or uh, a television program, that it's not necessarily censorship if you close down temporarily a platform because you are concerned that this is the coordination uh, mechanism for, for terrorists in an ongoing attack. I mean, how, how do you see that? It's a very, very difficult uh, discussion, it, it, a very difficult uh, a line difficult to line, tread. But, it, but again, I think uh, that we know that platforms in today's world, and this part of the West Coast knows it particularly well, mm. can be manipulated uh, very easily by uh, automated systems that means that those are not platforms for individuals mm. communicating with each other. What, 45% of uh, Twitter activity in, in Russia is robotically in, uh, driven in order to influence elections around various parts of the world, according to a study done by the Oxford Internet Institute recently. Um, and so we can't simply talk about these platforms as pure platforms. They mm. are methods of communication. Um, I always joke to my colleagues at Chatham House, when you tweet, we say tweeting is publishing. Yes. Publishing. Yes. You know, when you said that, that's out there forever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I, I do think that any type of social activity... Uh, that's what politics is about, needs to operate under the consent of the society and governments are responsible for channeling that consent. Yeah. So in, we should not be afraid in Western societies uh, of thinking creatively about how we apply rules on the market. Any, you know, well, one of the things I'm most proud about as a European is that we have a thing called the social market. Mm -hmm. The social market is where you get the best out of the market, but you think about its societal implications and you measure your level of regulatory uh, involvement to try to draw the best for society out and minimize the worst. A very nice segue to uh, to another couple of questions in your direction, and we'll we'll get to Brexit. I promise that because I have to ask you as a Brit, you know, what what is going to happen, and I look forward to getting your your full and comprehensive answer on that one. No, but I, I think one big question out there is, of course, whether technology and some of the new platforms is that making us better political citizens, if you like, is that empowering us, is it connecting us, or is it in fact adding to what you could say, sort of a lack of social cohesion or perhaps even fragmentation in our own societies. I think there's a global aspect to that, Robin, which is, you know, how will this look in five, ten years' time in terms of, of the South or the developing economies? Are they going to benefit from 
the digital age, will they have access to the same advantages? And I'm not talking about uh, you know access to Facebook or autonomous vehicles, but rather education or healthcare, etc. Or will we see a, a sort of a global digital divide? And and how is that going to play out in in the international sphere? I think that's one question. And then I'll come back to the to the Brexit question because I think there are some parallels uh, okay. locally and, and regionally as a, that as well. Um, I think that uh, again, uh, what we're seeing with these technology companies today is they are slightly mirrors and reflections of ourselves. They, they can't not be. I mean, I know they can be manipulated and, and you can bring out particular dimensions of, of, uh, of individual and societal instincts, but the political systems that we've worked off in the West, in particular in Europe, where you lived in a world of tribal politics, mm. which was broadly cut between those who represented labor and the, the advocates of labor, metropolitan elites in many cases, um, and the advocates of business and their, uh, or business and their advocates, in many cases middle class or, or, or elements of, of the working class who benefited from strong companies. That, that divide and that neat separation into parties of what were known as the right and the left uh, have been atrophying for quite a long time, mm. uh, partly under the pressures of, of globalization, but also the way the globalization has driven humans back into some of their more core instincts. A very interesting statistic came out recently um, of uh, the British Social Attitude Survey, which is the main uh, annual survey done of British citizens. Only 8% of Brits today qualify themselves very strongly as Conservative or Labour mm -hmm. members. Over 40% define themselves as Remainers or Leavers. And actually, it's got very little to do with the EU. Yes. The EU is, again, a cipher for remaining, wanting to be part of a global multicultural kind of world with open opportunities, and, and leavers who you know, disdain the metropolitan elites and saying, what's it doing for me? Uh, and how do we uh, protect our national interests and our identity, in many cases, more, more proactively? Now, what you've got with these new companies is that they are uh, hyper-driving the reawakening of those, uh, of those instincts. They haven't created them, in my opinion, but yeah. they are certainly channeling them. And uh, what I hope is that this will be a transition phase. And in fact, if anything, the technology companies, again, I'm a glass half full person, the technology companies might enable a smoother, in the end, transition from parties in the left and right to more uh, uh, distributed, disaggregated forms of politics that might be more local, uh, that might be uh, more city-driven, that will also be more federal, I suppose, in that sense, multi-layered, um, and more instant and constant, mm. where, where citizens start to feel a connectivity again to the political process because they can have a voice in it and they can see it having some type of impact back in their lives. It's become so distant for most mm. people mm. Um, that it's actually undermining democracy. Uh, and so uh, the, the trick will be to make sure that those platforms and so on can be channels for this human transition yes. and not be manipulated by others to transition it into a negative direction, which is why you do need to have the controls and the capacity to look inside. But um, I, I do think they are reflecting, again, a very fundamental change taking place in the West. If I want to be a little optimistic as well... Um, Please do, we uh, need that. <laughs> China is interesting because you know, one of the big challenges for any government is how can you retain legitimacy and accountability? Mm. And to my understanding, the Chinese government uses very effectively social media to take the pulse constantly of Chinese public opinion yeah. and adapts its policies accordingly. 
Now, you don't want to be a minority in China, and you certainly don't want to be a, a, a political dissident or reformist because, you know, you're toast, as they say in the UK. I mean, they will, they'll be ruthless about it. Mm. But in terms of the 85% or the 90%, mm. they're also using these platforms to try to adjust uh, economic policy making, social policy making, uh, welfare policy making. So, again, I, I can't see this purely as a negative. Yeah, and I think your point is one of the dilemmas as well, that uh, in many ways technology could be the savior in connecting people. It could also increase accountability, not least uh, to our political leadership, uh, etc. Pointing out uh, when when people are, are doing things that are not good for 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 climate change or the world. On the other hand, when you look at the filter bubbles, the fact that when you go on social media, you are sort of confirmed with what you already believe because the algorithm is providing more information of the kind that you already enjoyed uh, enjoyed watching. Now, that's one of the advantages of having children using your iPad that I get lots of very, very different stuff that I don't necessarily <laughs> enjoy looking at, but that, that's a different story. But, but the problem here is, again, that I, I guess the jury is still out on whether technology will be a doer of good in terms of democracy and, and the political citizen or whether it will actually create the, the fragmentation. And then comes the question, Robin, how big a role did technology play in, in the Brexit uh, negotiations and, and also in the aftermath and where we are today? Look, is this a good segue? <coughs> uh, it's a good segue question to make, actually, because now I haven't explored it forensically. My understanding of the, of the role that technology played in the Brexit uh, uh, referendum was not the one that most people think about, which is the you know, Russian interference, where, again, from my understanding, at most there was some spiked Twitter activity in the last two or three days before the vote, but there was not a methodical approach. However, um, from the reporting that's been undertaken in this area, it's clear that uh, there were US platforms that saw Brexit as a dry run almost for the 2016 November uh, presidential election and uh, the role of aggregate IQ loosely connected to Cambridge uh, Analytica or maybe not loosely, I don't know, um, uh, which was documented or at least uh, reflected, described very act uh, actively uh, and was a core part of the plot of the Uncivil War, this big uh, uh, movie that Benedict Cumberbatch did where he played Dominic Cummings, the architect of the Leave campaign. And where they posit quite explicitly, and I haven't seen a lawsuit to contradict it, um, <laughs> that what uh, Agri IQ was able to do was to give the Leave campaign a tool to bring into the referendum uh, a group of voters who they were pretty confident would be able to vote against, but who'd not been involved in elections before. And now that's the interesting point here. Because on the one hand, it was a manipulation. They drew people into these by putting little questionnaires off about football or the clickbait type of things. And once they had the clickbait people taking the bait, then they started feeding in stories about leave and the EU being this, that and the other. And they created momentum that I think partly led to the very large turnout of 72% of people voting in that referendum. And that difference, the extra 3 million, the programme claimed, uh, who were brought out to vote, probably was the difference uh, between uh, remain or leave. However, 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 should we be criticizing uh, entirely technology for making that outcome? Mm. Why were those people never <clears throat> voting? These are people who were marginalized from society, who had no voice, who were getting nothing out of being members of the EU, um, and who were on that side of, of, of the globalization equation, the negative side of it, who were given a chance to have a voice and say, I'm not happy, mm. I don't like this. Yeah. Um, and 
in a way, technology drew those people in, made them feel for the first time in their lives that their voice was heard. Uh, so, you know, technology is, uh, and these platforms are, are mirrors in many cases uh, to our character and to our dichotomies. Uh, they could also be agitators, especially if they're used or manipulated. But, uh, you know, the, things weren't so great <laughs> um, prior to the Brexit uh, referendum with British attitudes to the EU. And in a way, we were living in a, uh, in a situation where those who got the most out of it saw its benefits, and those who didn't like it were in a kind of zombie status and felt they were disenfranchised. Mm. They were re-enfranchised by this process. So a different but filter bubble. But it's a different filter bubble. Yeah. Now their bubble is included as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, yeah, competing filter bubbles. And perhaps just uh, going back to, to our initial uh, conversation about the change of, let's say, the global order, I think one of the lessons that perhaps we can actually track back to a traumatic experience uh, in a Danish context was COP15, uh, the climate uh, discussions that yeah. took place and was not very successful. Um, I think what we saw at that stage is that it is very difficult for, for Western democracies, liberal democracies, to continue to set the agenda and, and, and ring-fencing those agendas and getting everybody else around the world to, uh, to support or, or to, to follow up on that. In comes the technology companies and all of a sudden you have a degree of complexity that are even, even uh, more, uh, more difficult perhaps than what we saw back at, at the days of COP15. And I guess that will continue to, to play out. Um, you know, coming towards the end, Robin, what what's what sort of your recommendations to simple diplomats like myself <laughs> or to to uh, Western liberal democracies around the world, in order for us to defend what I strongly believe in is incredibly important, some of the values that we've been fighting for for literal, literally centuries. You know, a European approach uh, to democracy, to human rights, gender equality, non biases, etc. How how do we fix those things? So if you if you have the silver bullet, please uh, please let us know. If there was a silver bullet, if I had a silver bullet, I'd be trying to fire it in all directions. I mean, I, I, though I think the answer is is almost Clintonian. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it is the economy, stupid. You mm -hmm. know, I don't. As I said technology and the platforms are simply reflecting this. The fact of the matter is that uh, there were many losers of the last 20, 30 years of globalization, and even the winners feel pretty insecure about their gains. They know instinctively that they're moving into a phase where the technological disruption is going to get larger rather than, than less, and where some of the fears of, uh, uh, of globalization, certainly if you're in Europe, of African migration, are going to get larger, not less. They look around the world and they see a pretty risky mm. place that everyone's been telling them, don't worry, it's fine, you know, the world's going in our direction. And they think, mm. well, maybe in who's our, not my direction? So unless you're able to demonstrate that uh, uh, European governments can channel the collective uh, uh, strengths and talents of their society towards a sense of well-being and relative stability, then n you know, nothing will be possible. Only negatives will come out and these platforms can be used to stir up those negative insecurities and can't be used for their positives. Uh, that we described a minute ago. So uh, I think there is something right probably about even the French description now of Europe qui protège, you know, Europe that protects. People are looking for more protection. Yeah. They need a phase of protection from these blasts and winds of globalization to regain legitimacy or re-give their, their consent to the governments. Only once the governments have that consent, and maybe the way they have consent will have to be different in the future, that they mm. have to give up some of the centralizing control, as they devolve it more uh, and keep less in the center, but however they adjust, until citizens start to feel a bit more secure, mm. 
we're only going to see the negative sides of these conversations. As I said, this will be a, at least a 10-year period. It took us 20 years to get into this period of populism and uncertainty. It'll take us at least half that to get out. Um, uh, populists never fail once. They have to fail twice. The first time they fail is somebody else's fault, always. Uh, and we haven't gone through that first phase yet. So, uh, you know, I'm, that's why I'm... I'm, I'm sanguine and cautious about, about the near term, but I still remain relatively optimistic about the mid to, to longer term. Um, and, yeah. And when you look at perception data and surveys <clears throat> of the younger generation, I think one of the difficulties here is, of course, that uh, very few young people are aligning themselves necessarily towards democracy. It's other things that are on top of their agenda. So I think that also plays into some of the difficulties we'll, well, they don't we'll like see. They old politics. They don't want to be Labour or Conservative or whatever yeah. it is. They, they just don't have any affinity to those labels anymore. Exactly. And perhaps the paradox is that we do need technology to try and fix that and bring them into the equation one way or the other. And by the way, that's where we think that uh, governments have a huge responsibility, but the tech sector and the tech industry also needs to, to play their part. And we have a project specifically underway, if I can say one thing about Seven House here, actually on digital democracy, which we've been running for the last year, uh, getting people from all over the world to try and feed in ideas as to how technology actually might be an agent for rebooting democracy and yeah. democratic forms of discourse in government. Because I think that, you know, everyone's yin and yang. We're spending a lot of time on the negatives of technology at the moment and not enough on, on the opportunities. And I think the role of, of uh, think tanks are going to be incredibly important. Uh, I would just advocate that what we are trying to do is, of course, also to have ears and eyes on the ground in the epicenters of transformation. <clears throat> my role and, and the role of my team, be it here in, in Silicon Valley, in Europe, or in, in Beijing, in Asia, is exactly that, to try and better understand where the world is heading, better understand how we act in that world, and perhaps also better understand if we want to protect some of the things that we believe in, how do we seek to influence that, be it towards the tech uh, companies, be it towards other governments or civil society in a, in a broad sense. So I think these conversations are, are going to be much needed in, in the next uh, years to come. So, so I really enjoy that. Listen, um, Robin, you know my last question is always what should have what is the question I should have asked you and what is the answer to that? I was very tempted to say, when is, go is, is Brexit going to, to happen and um, what will, will come out of it? But I think that's too difficult a question even for you, Robin. So let's, let's go back to the other one. What, what, uh, what should we have been talking about and what's the answer to that? Well, uh, you know, I, I try to uh, protect a potential answer to this question you warned me you'd ask uh, before, <laughs> you know, right until the last three minutes of our conversation just now, which is the bit about how technology is actually changing politics in Europe, yeah. as opposed to how it's changing politics globally or internationally or even economics internationally. And, and we've covered that one, so you've you took away my, my point. Though I think it's interesting that uh, um, India is a country that remains almost impossible to understand externally. It is the country with the largest population in the world. Yeah. It is a democracy. Um, and it, and it, is, it is a distributed federal democracy with all the chaos that comes with it. Um, it has not taken the Chinese development model, um, but it has a very different demographic profile. In a way, trying to engage India and Indians, more importantly, I think, than the government, because it's a country where the government tends to be actually not that powerful, which is why we never talk about it. It's not acting on the world stage the way China or America or Russia does. But all the more reason, I feel, to engage India and Indians in this conversation, um, because I think where they take, they, you know, we've always, we're still stuck in old Cold War metaphor where it used to be America and Russia with China as the swing player. Mm. Now the Cold War we talk about is America and China with Russia as the swing player. Yeah. But actually hiding underneath all of that is India. And if you were to think of the future with a technology lens, you'd really be playing at America, China and India. Mm. The question is, which side is India on? 
Now, you took my last speaking notes away from me, Robin, because I visited India a few months ago, and, and one of the clear takeaways that I had was in this battle of different approaches to technologies between sort of the Wild West of, of the US and the Wild East of, of China, um, where Europe is having some difficulties uh, reorienting or defining itself, I think building alliances with countries like India is going to be incredibly important. Um, and if you look at this in sort of balance of power, I think we do need to invest more in, in, uh, in our relationships with China because they do have a democratic approach to technology. We don't see ITR on everything, but I, I completely agree with you that that is going to be a very important relationship for, for Europe in, in the next decade or perhaps in the next decades. Also to make sure that technology will indeed be a, a doer of good, mm. will bring people into the equation. I saw it with my own uh, eyes how people in the fringes of the Indian society are now getting access to simple services because of what technology can can do. So, so thanks for making that point. It allowed me to 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 come back to something that. <laughs> and we avoid Brexit. <laughs> well, I hope we will avoid Brexit, but that's a different topic. Robin, thanks for for spending time with us on this podcast. I, I learned a lot, and I look forward to spending uh, some hours with you here in Silicon Valley, linking up with uh, the big technology companies. I think that's going to be. Uh, an important thing to look at whether you are a think tank or whether you are a government um, and um, thanks again for, for joining us today. Well, thank you Casper, thanks for the opportunity.